Our great God and King, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would help us to be challenged by the reading of your word, that we would be encouraged to think about what it means to be true followers of you. Lord God, we pray that you would challenge our hearts, that you would convict us and you would quietly lead us into a deeper and more right service and trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The year was 1983. It had been coming and people knew it. They were eager with anticipation. The first two parts had changed a generation and indeed changed the way that the world viewed the fantastic genre of science fiction, taking the film industry to levels that it had never seen before. With Han Solo in captivity, the Rebel Alliance in tatters, and Luke Skywalker's fate uncertain, fans all over the world were set for the unveiling of the third part of the Star Wars trilogy, Episode 6, The Return of the Jedi. In some ways, today's passage is a lot like the third chapter in the Star Wars trilogy. We've seen two parts of the story of Judges so far, the narrative of Israel's failures to drive out the nations and God's judgment on them, and then the snapshots of the 12 judges who led Israel in both military conquest and, in varying ways, their practice and their worship of God. But today's passage is something a little bit different. And I'm sure you picked that up as we read through it together. The story starts out in a similar way, and we expect Micah to be painted as a judge who would come and save Israel in one way or other. And despite his failures to be seen in some great positive and religious light. And then we have the Levite priest, and we expect to see the same thing. We expect some redemptive story, and then again the Danites, and we expect to see them come in and bring some redemptive tone. If you're like me, you read this passage and you scream, No, you can't do this. Turn, repent. God is gracious and compassionate and will forgive you. Pray for a deliverer like the other Israelites have, who will come and save you. But instead, we are left with a certain emptiness as we watch first Micah and his family, then the Levite priest, and then the whole tribe of Dan slowly step away from the way of God, the God who saved them from Egypt, who led them through the promised land, and who had promised the nation of Israel a place to call their own. We expect the Levite priest to turn Micah's family back to the true worship of their God and to lead the Danite clan back in their service of God. But instead, we have the opposite. The downward, consistent spiral of Israel as they turn from their God to worship idols, the service of false gods, and their self-indulgent, self-serving practices. What we'll see as we look at this today is that Micah, the Levite, and the Danites had fooled themselves into thinking that they were worshipping their God. And in fact, they were doing things that he despised. They had a pattern of devotion and righteousness that may have normally been commended, but it was focused in the wrong areas, doing the wrong things and acting against God's commands. And so with that in mind, let's have another look at today's story 
with a fresh set of eyes. We start our passage with a quick look at Micah. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, about which I heard you utter a solemn curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Micah, whose name means who is like the Lord, is anything but. He had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver and only gives it back because he's worried about the curse she has spoken over the person who took it. But he needn't have worried because his mother redacts the curse and instead pronounces God's blessing on Micah and even dedicates the money to the Lord. Well, almost. She dedicates all of the money well, almost of it, to make an idol, and then gives 200 shekels to actually have it made. And then Micah, her son, dutifully takes the idol and puts it in his house. He makes some priestly garments and makes one of his sons a priest. This is a picture of the broken heart of Israel, a picture that we have come to see time and time again in Judges. We've seen some questionable choices by the nation of Israel and questionable choices by judges through the rest of the book. But they are ultimately led by God to great acts that serve the nation of Israel. But this narrative is void of any such hope. Micah is clearly not the judge that Israel needs at this time, and his actions are anything but reflective of a man who is like the Lord. But even as we can see this from the outside looking in, it's worth reflecting on the language that Micah and his mother use. They seem convinced that they are doing the right thing. They are using the right words and doing things that they think genuinely match the pattern and the worship of God. While it's not hard for us to see that they got it wrong, very wrong, it doesn't take much for us to imagine that they were doing this with very good intentions. They fooled themselves into thinking that they were worshipping the true God in the right way. In the same way, we need to look at our lives. As the writer of Judges reminds us in that next verse, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But unlike Israel in the time of Judges, we do have a king, a great king who reigns from heaven, a king who died on the cross to save us. Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, rules over us and commands our allegiance and obedience to him. He commands us to follow his example of obedience, service and trust. Are there things that we do that have the appearance of godliness, but in practice are anything but the way that King Jesus would have us live in service of him. I suspect that for the majority of us, and probably all of us, it's not as obvious as casting metal statues of the Godhead and appointing our children as priests over them. 
If that is something that you are guilty of and have been challenged by today's passage, can I suggest that the Bible quite plainly teaches that these sorts of things are wrong and that we are not to make images or idols of the invisible God and worship things made by man rather than the Creator. But in many ways, we can fall into a pattern of false worship. A worship of God where we appear to do the right thing, but on the inside, our hearts are far from the God who made us. Perhaps you want to be seen to engage with the sermon or Bible study material, and you ask really insightful questions designed to get people really thinking about the deep issues. But what's really going on is rather than fueling other people's further thought about the gospel and Jesus, you're instead stroking your own ego. Perhaps you've installed the latest Bible app on your iPhone and even placed it on that first home screen so you'll have easy access to God's Word wherever you go. But instead, you only open it when you get to church every week and your Bible sits at home, untouched and unused. Maybe you have that app on your iPhone but instead you've mastered the double-tap app switch so that you can have the appearance of concentration and engagement in church while secretly you're checking out the current position of the ASX or reading the latest updates from your friends on Instagram. Maybe you like to post those super encouraging and thought-provoking memes on Facebook because you found them really encouraging. Or at least you want your friends to think that you found them really encouraging. But in your heart of hearts, you really know that it's all for show. Maybe you pride yourself on being able to get to every church activity perfectly on time. Maybe you fill your weeks and months with committees and places to serve. But you're only engaging with God outwardly and not engaging with him on a personal level. Or maybe, in contrast, you pride yourself on how you avoid overcommitment and how you're involved in being involved in too many church activities. But in doing so, you've let your heart drift from being involved in Christian fellowship and your soul is no longer being fueled by regular Bible reading and prayer. The Bible speaks clearly. The character of a follower of Christ is one of personal devotion to God in prayer, in reading scripture, and in fellowship with other believers. If you've formed your Christian pattern in a way which obscures this, or lives out of character or step with this, then it's time to turn and repent. Make regular time to read the Bible and pray. Examine your thoughts, attitudes, and motivations and ensure that you are placing the advancement of Jesus' kingdom at the centre of everything that you do and say and engage with. Ensure that your priorities are shaped by your king and your behaviour is shaped in a way that encourages gospel obedience and service. And ask yourself how you can encourage your friends and family to do the same. I can guarantee that many of you struggle to do these things. And many of your Christian friends and family struggle too. Reading the Bible regularly is hard. Taking time to pray is hard. If nothing else, after church today, take some time to discuss how you can encourage one another to a true 
and more full worship of God. But our story didn't stop here. The next character that we meet is the wandering Levite. This man was an itinerant preacher. He went from town to town looking for a place where he could share his calling and vocation. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. We don't see a wonderful teacher or priest here. It turns out that Micah wasn't totally satisfied with his homegrown priest, and so when the Levite arrived, he quickly offered him a position on his household staff, paying his wage, providing food and shelter, so that the Levite could preside over his false worship. Micah saw this Levite's presence as a sign of God's blessing and favour. As he says in verse 13, And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Don't let the subtleties of the writer of Judges' condemnation be lost on you. The Levites were part of God's pattern of worship, but they weren't the ones that were called to be priests. Only the descendants of Aaron were called to be priests and preside over the worship of Israel. But more than that, the Levites were to serve in the worship of God with the priests in the presence of God's meeting place. This Levite, in search for his calling, has gone wandering through the wilderness looking for a better offer. And hasn't he found it? A priest for a household presiding over a beautiful silver idol with all of his expenses paid. But beyond his own disobedience, he is quick to pronounce God's blessing when faced with the challenge and was interested in protecting his own skin rather than serving that of his bill-paying master. When faced with the opportunity of promotion to serving a whole clan, he simply ran off with them and became glad. Let's look again at chapter 18. They answered him, Be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took an ephod, the other household gods, and carved image and went along with the people. Isn't it ironic that the Levite, who was to serve the whole nation of Israel in holy worship, was fooled by his own selfish desires into thinking that he had a great calling in presiding over Micah's false gods, first for Micah and then for the tribe of Dan. But in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. But now we do have a king. Jesus, our king, has passed through the heavens and become our priest. He did not take this honour on himself, like the Levite, but was called by God. As the writer in Hebrews says, no one takes this honour upon himself, he must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But from time to time, we can be tempted to set our own path and to surround ourselves with people that tell us the things we want to hear. We can become dissatisfied and disillusioned with our church and the people in it and look for more attractive teaching. We can want to have a greater experience of God, to connect with him on a more personal or more intimate level, 
And so rather than looking in Scripture and by being faithful in prayer, we search for teachers that will give us other ways to scratch our spiritual yearning. We can equally put our faith in our leaders, our elders, our ministers to be the ones that mediate for us before God when we already have direct access to our Heavenly Father through Jesus, our great priest. We can be tempted to trust the approval or forgiveness of those around us rather than entrusting in the saving grace that comes from our Lord and Saviour who died on the cross for us. Each of these differences is subtle but significant in the way that our hearts can be shifted from the true worship of our living God. And so we need to take the time and examine our hearts and see what God may be teaching us here. We need to look at our practice as a church. Are we teaching grace and forgiveness as found in Jesus, following him in every step? Or are we teaching obedience to our practices, to our method of living Christianity, and ultimately, ourselves? Are we encouraging each other to turn to Jesus and to be faithful to him to the end? Or are we walking the Christian life alone without the help of our brothers and sisters? Friends, our church consultancy report identified that our congregation has a greater desire for connection and community, for fostering of better relationships. And we've taken many steps already to start building this community and solidifying the foundation that we've started. But let's not forget that this foundation needs to be based in Christ. And this community needs to be shaped not by our common interest of Lego, building, gardens, craft, games, children, music, or different life stages, but it needs to be shaped and founded on our firm and unswavering trust in our God and King, Jesus Christ. Finally, we come to the tribe of Dan. Like all the tribes of Israel, Dan had an inheritance in Canaan. But as we saw in Judges chapter 1, the Danites weren't able to drive out the Amorites and were stuck in the hill country. So rather than claiming the land that they were supposed to and going to war with the people that they were supposed to, that God would have given into their hands, they went wandering through Canaan looking for other land that they could claim. Wandering through Ephraim, they came across Micah's house and ran into a familiar voice, the voice of the Levite. Confused and probably a little bit surprised to find him there, they inquire of him and ask him to inquire of the Lord. He blesses their journey and they continue and happen upon the unsuspecting city of Laish. The writer doesn't go to great lengths to tell us about Laish, except that it was a city of plenty and it was not hostile towards Israel. The Danites plot a military invasion of these unsuspecting people, and in the end, their conquest is successful. But you see, rather than taking the course of action that God had set for them, they chose the easy way out. They saw that the people were living in safety, like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure, and since they lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Eshtael, the brothers asked them, how did you find things? They answered, come on, let's attack them. We have seen that the land is good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate. Go there. Take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has just put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatsoever. They went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. 
they attacked them with the sword and burned down the city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and they had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in the valley near Beth Rehob. Rather than choosing the difficult course of obedience, they chose the easy course. But wait, there's more. As we read through the narrative, we see one more important elephant. When the invading Danites came across Micah, they stole both his idol made of stolen silver and his wandering priest that had agreed to serve him. In fact, they actively sought his house, his idol and his gods to take. Then they set up this false idol as their own god. They worshipped it instead of the true god of Israel. And they even established a line of priests, descended from Moses, that served them in this place, leading them in their worship of idols made by the hands of men, all the while that the house of God was really in Shiloh. Once again, we're gobsmacked by the actions of our characters in the story. The Danites had forgotten the commands of Joshua and had forsaken the teachings of Moses. Their tribe had a role to fulfill in the nation of Israel, and they acted cowardly and treacherously. Yet to them, they were fulfilling their destiny. God set the nation of Israel to conquer the land, and they were doing that, weren't they? Just like Micah, they were doing what they thought was the right thing. They were trying their best to be good followers of their God. But we need to take the awkwardness of how we feel about the Danites' actions and consider how we, as individuals, and as a church, may be guilty of doing the same things. Often when we try to serve God through our own pattern of worship, by doing things our own way, we fall into the trap of shaping God's will through our own desires and actions, our good goals for love, acceptance, security, place, growth, certainty, or belonging, rather than being shaped by our Christian beliefs, instead shape our interpretations of how we perceive God wants us to act. In and of themselves, these desires for things aren't wrong. But when they mould our actions and cause us to disregard God's teaching for our lives, we need to stop and repent. So when we as a church want to grow our congregation, in what ways are we tempted to compromise the teaching of the gospel for the sake of getting more people in the door? Would we consider softening our teaching on God's judgment? Would we consider watering down the Bible's teaching on same-sex marriage? Would we sacrifice the Bible's teaching on divorce, pornography, abortion, money, the environment, or refugees to seem more palatable to our neighbours, to try and win them in our doors? When you read the Bible and we come across passages we don't like, do you attempt to explain away the plain teaching of the Bible by looking for other interpretations that better fit your own view of life? When you have conversations with your non-Christian friends about the gospel, do you soften the call that God makes for repentant obedience in every aspect of their lives out of fear you might not be liked or accepted? Are you tempted to minimise the necessity of the Christian community to meet together, to encourage one another towards a life of love, service and good deeds? Perhaps you've convinced yourself that midweek Bible study is an optional extra, that you don't need that kind of Christian commitment in your life and that Sunday is enough. 
But surely, if you're committed, devoted, and changed by Jesus, you're driven to want to spend more time in his word and more of every day being absorbed by his word, being connected to him in prayer and in fellowship with other believers so that you can be encouraged and encourage them not to make the same mistakes that the Danites made. When you come across difficult situations where following Jesus is really hard, do you take the easy way out? Maybe, maybe you found yourself in a difficult time in your marriage and you know that it's possible to work through, but instead you just want to throw the towel in. Maybe you've been plagued with ongoing illness and rather than trusting in God, you're tempted to curse him or blame him for your illness. Or maybe you're tempted to go searching for answers in other places, spiritual guides, healers, creative interpretations of the Bible that promise healing and change. However we look at our gospel calling to follow Jesus, we are reminded of one thing time and time again. Following Jesus is not easy. Being obedient to God's word is not easy. There are difficult choices to make. There are decisions that are going to hurt. There are things that will seem easy and straightforward that when we scratch the surface, we will see are not sound and contrary to God's teaching. We will be tempted, like the Danites, to take the easy path. Instead of perseverance through trial and temptation, we will be tempted to take shortcuts. We need only to turn to our Lord Jesus and remind ourselves of his temptation in the wilderness. We need to only turn to our Lord Jesus and remind himself, remind ourselves of his obedience to death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, our high priest, our king, has gone before us to set us the pattern to live. We must not forget him, but we must persevere through trial, through temptation, through persecution and suffering. We must persevere through difficult decisions and hard times. We have been called to gospel-changed lives that are shaped by our King. We must be faithful in reading Scripture. We must be obedient in prayer. We must be faithful in service. We must meet together and serve each other. We must remember what it is to be saved and to live as people that are saved. And each day, persevere towards that great goal when we will stand side by side with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For when our minds are filled with Scripture, when our hearts are close to God in prayer, when we're surrounded by Christian witness and encouragement, what place can false idols have in our lives? How can false teachings stand and take root in our, our congregation or persons? How can we be led astray by scriptural heresies? Our foundation will be firm. Our eyes will be firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Our great God, you've given us a very, very difficult calling, a calling that commands obedience to your commands for us. Lord God, you ask for nothing but lives that wholeheartedly follow you in every way. And Lord God, as we look at our lives, we know that we fall short so many times and in so many ways. 
as we reflect on the mistakes that the Israelites made in today's stories, we can see echoes of the same mistakes in our own lives. We can see the pressure and the temptation to walk away from you, to take the easy way out, to be in service of false gods and false idols. Lord God, we ask that you would continue to give us new hearts, hearts that are changed by your gospel. Lord God, we ask that we would continue to sanctify us by your spirit, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to come to you for forgiveness when we do the wrong thing. But Lord God, we ask that our lives would be so soaked in your word, so soaked in your teaching, so soaked in your gospel, that we can't do anything but live your way. Lord God, please help us each day to walk each day in step with you. Lord God, please keep drawing us back to your word. Please keep drawing us back to prayer. Please help us encourage one another to do the same. And Lord God, we pray that as we look forward to the day when you come back to earth, when we stand once again with you. And Lord God, your day of judgment comes and you finally bring the end of this world and make all things new again. Lord God, we ask that you would keep us standing firm to that day, that we would not wander from you, but that we would persevere and that we would trust in you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we it's so easy just to go through the motions of uh, of, of of Christian worship uh, to, uh, to to think that we're doing the right thing. We had this uh, challenge from, from from Andrew this morning and our final hymn, the title of it sort of tells us to do the right things you know my heart is full of thankfulness. What will we be thankful for? Will it be for the things that, uh, you know, for our family, for our good health, for all of those things? Where are we going to, what, what ultimately are we going to be thankful for? And perhaps this final hymn ought to be a challenge to us because it does express where our true thankfulness really should lie because as we work through this hymn, we'll, we'll be seeing that our heart is full of thankfulness for the one who died for us and bore our sins, for the one who walks beside us, for the one who reigns on high. Let's join together and with all of our hearts and from the depths of our soul, sing that our hearts are indeed filled with thankfulness for the one who died for us. Let's stand.
So let's close with the following words from Hebrews, which are a challenge and a reminder. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Amen.